45 minutes past the hour. It's 11.45. I'm here with Gary Art. Talking to me from Appleton, Wisconsin. Scott, a question today. You ever pooped your pants at a Walmart? Oh, my God. Have I pooped my pants at a Walmart? You know, you taught me an important lesson. And that is, if you go to a bookstore and start reading stuff, in five minutes, you're going to have to shit. <sighs> Stacks disease. There's a name for it? That's what we always called it, yeah, because we you'd go into the stacks of a library and you'd have to shit five <laughs> minutes later. We were talking about when we first met, and you had brought up a shoutcast. Yeah, so precursor to podcasting. (laughs) So I had a company at the time, Stomp.com. We were a gaming news website. We did some other things, and we started doing this audio with this guy who did radio. And it was—he's called it all game radio. He was a—he was like a professional radio DJ or whatever. Is that? And we know it ends more. Yeah. And we saw that you were doing something kind of similar. And we were like, yeah, we should get him on the show. And I think that's kind of how it started. And then I met you at like some CPL events and some that's other right. stuff. That's right. Because I remember those, those. Okay. So the CPL is when we did kind of first meet in person. Yeah, probably. Angel Munoz running the first cyber professional league. You know, that was an idea that it turns out was probably the right idea. Just yeah. not at the right time. Yeah, he was just ahead of his time. Yeah. God, is that just the worst thing to be is ahead of your time? I mean, yeah, I don't know if the games were. I mean, even when I think of like, so I opened up a land gaming center. And in hindsight, that would have been if I had waited a year and opened it up with Xboxes rather than PCs, it probably would have been more successful. Okay, so let's back up a second. So let's, uh, so Gary, you're well-known now as one of the most, if not the most successful travel bloggers in the world, correct? Uh, I've been doing it a long time. We we can get into the business part of that later, but right. Yeah. I I think a lot of people would know, although I'm finding out a lot of the people who are just starting have no clue who I am. Oh, really? Yeah. But most people now would know you as the creator of everything everywhere. Yeah. I'm a, tra- I'm a travel guy. I'm a photographer. That's kind of what right. you know me as. But I know you from before as the creator and owner of stomped.com. So what was stomped? This is so the cr- late nineties. So before that, I had a very early internet company and we were doing uh, web development with databases, which at the time was a thing right now. Everything is, is done that way. You have WordPress and everything. But back then, integrating databases was difficult. It was challenging and expensive. And that's what we were doing. And I sold that business. And then there was this guy in Minneapolis I knew who had a popular gaming website. But he tried to use it to launch an ISP. And he got Mm -hmm. into debt. And so basically, I paid off his debt, which is about $10,000. And I took control of the website from him. And then I I, I still kind of hired him. and. Uh, I negotiated a deal in where we sold all of our ad inventory to CNET. Right. And for like a $2 CPM, 
And then we turned around and sold ad inventory to like the official Counter-Strike forums, Alakazam, which you remember was a, the site for EverQuest. Right. So you sold, um, you resold the ad inventory. Right. So we were doing really well uh, <laughs> up until we weren't. Yeah. Uh, then the dot-com bubble burst and CNET called and like, yeah, we're, we're done. And so our revenues went from like a quarter million dollars a month to zero. So in that time, I had connected with UGO and I was getting the same kind of deal. So I was getting a $3 CPM, uh, which for, the, for those of you listening that don't know what that means, it is CPM is cost per milli, which is cost per thousand. So for every thousand page views, you get $3 guaranteed, which in 2021 is unheard of, just unheard of. Uh, we were getting guaranteed that money and no ads were even being sold by a lot of these companies. Uh, what Gary even suggested to me at the time was that I start a network of cartoonists, put them on my network, feed them the UGO ads and only give them half of the, the ads. Is that what you were doing with Stomp? Yeah. And it was a better deal for everyone because they were getting ad sales that they otherwise couldn't get. Right. And, and they were getting incredible amounts of page views. Yeah. Like everything back then, there just weren't as many websites and there wasn't as much competition. There were like maybe four major gaming websites. Right. You know, there was like blues news. Um, uh, oh, what was the, the, the greenhouse thing? Um, game spy. Remember that guy? Well, there was GameSpy, there was Blues News, and then there was another one. It was a the logo was this dumb green looking house. Can't think of it now. Razor something. I don't remember. Yeah, Blues News still exists. It does. And it looks the same. Yes, it has not changed at all since the late 90s. Isn't that weird? Wow. There's a few sites like that, like um, slash dot and other things that just they just never changed yeah um but yeah we were getting like 50 million page views across the network a month so wow. it was it was it was a lot and then the dot-com bubble burst and then all the good times ended yeah so let me let me tell a quick story so in the middle of this right before the the bubble bursts that coincides with when we first met and we're sitting at a cpl event in dallas and the cpl was the cyber professional cyber. league Cyber Athlete Professional League. Cyber Athlete Professional League. A guy in Dallas named Angel Munoz basically tried to invent esports before they existed. And he was running it locally. And Gary and I met at one of those events. We were talking about these content networks, him with CNET, me with UGO. And Gary explained to me basically how the dot-com boom was happening and how it was going to burst. Like, you explained to me, these guys are just getting venture capital money burning through it, and then hopefully they get another round and, and then it'll keep going like that until they get profitable, but most of them won't. And then the money will just stop. You even, you even helped me get, um, free hosting for my website, uh, through speakeasy. Remember that? Oh God. I haven't thought about them in ages. Yeah. You helped me get free hosting for my website. Cause at the time hosting was really, really expensive. You helped God, me. That's another we, when we did stomped, we did our own hosting and we had like a rack and a server room. Yeah. We had to buy all the computers and mm -hmm. all that today would cost, we, we, we wouldn't do it. Right. You just no just buy hosting somewhere. It'd be, yeah, just, just go to nothing. AWS. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and you told me like, you need, you know, 
the bubble's going to burst. And I started to have a panic attack. And you went, oh, you'll be fine. You make something that people want. You'll, you'll always be able to find a way to get them to support you for the thing that you make. Because you make a thing. Well, 20 years later, you're still here. <laughs> you're still doing the same thing. Right. I was right. You were right. And then when UGO stopped paying out, uh, even though the contract hadn't changed and my adherence to it hadn't changed, you help us negotiate an exit. And you secured me a 20 grand lump sum. Do you remember that? God, I don't, but. Okay, so you, we call, I called you for advice and I said, I don't know what to do. And you said, let me call UGO. I, I'll tell them that I'm your business uh, advisor, that I'm not a lawyer. So you called UGO and you said, hey, um, Scott, had, you told me to, whatever the contract says, to follow it by the letter. And, if, and the only thing the contract said I had to do was keep the trade dress uh, current. So you said, okay, every morning you go to the trade dress page, you grab all the logos and you re-up your website. So if they change the logo, they can't say that you didn't have the trade dress up. So do that. And then I'll, I'll call them. And you called them and said, my name's Gary Arndt. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a business part, a partner of Scott Kurtz's. I represent, I'm advising him. I'm looking at this contract. You're not paying him. So my advice right now is just to sue you for the, I think it was like $30,000 you owe him in, in back pay. And so uh, they're like, well, we want him to sign a contract that says that we only have to pay him X amount a month, no matter what he does. And you said, well, he doesn't want to sign that. So we're, in, we're at an impasse. So what do we do? And then they were like, well, what if we pay him the money we owe him, but we put it in escrow and blah, 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 and put it out over months. And you went, no. You have to get him to sign this contract because your next round of venture capital hinges on you getting all these old holdouts to sign their contracts and Scott won't sign it. So you'll give it to him in one lump sum. And then you called me and said, okay, you got to decide what money you want. And then we'll tell them more than that. So they give us what you want. <laughs> and I said, I want the 20 grand they owe me. They don't have to pay out the rest of the contract that hasn't happened yet. And you went, okay, we'll tell them you want 30. So he went back and said, he wants 30. And they go, well, how about if we pay him just the 20 we owe him? And you said, I'll take it to him and find out. And then that's what we got. We put a down payment on our house for it. Business. <laughs> yeah. And you did it all just out of the kindness of your heart because you thought it would be fun. So I will, you forgot about it, but I will never forget about it. Well, it's good you mentioned it, Scott, because I've been having kidney problems. <laughs> okay. I'm barely using mine. Uh, no, those okay, were, so, man, those were different times. I, I know. And you know what? A lot, it, it's always tempting to look back. Oh, those were the good old days. No, it wasn't always the good old days. There's so much now that's better no. about how everything is, everything works and everything. And there are some things that suck, but um, overall, it's just, it's a much better environment to be working in right now than it was 20 years ago online. Yeah. You know, I get a rash and a shit um, from people especially when I start talking about breaking into the industry because they'll say, well, sure, you started the 90s when there were like five websites and it was so much easier to break in. And that's true. But there wasn't any uh, acknowledgement of it being real, acceptance of it. And there certainly weren't any of these side businesses or any of these support businesses. And it's also survivor bias. People only see the, the web comics and the sites that have survived. They don't see all the, the dead ones that littered the road because wow. they're just not online anymore. 
I have never heard that term survivor bias. That's well, oh, true. Yeah. That's a, that's totally a thing. Cause I've had the same thing in travel blogging. Yeah. Uh, people say, oh, well, you're just, you know, because you've been around so long. It's like being around early wasn't necessarily a benefit. Being around a long time might be, but there are a lot of sites, a lot of them that just tried it and failed. And then their sites got taken down and no one ever knew they existed. Yeah. Well, I still remember the day you called me. You had gotten drunk out of your mind and you were like, well, it's over. CNET's done. I got to tell all these people they're fired. Yes, that that was a horrible. That's, that's, man, that was one of the worst days of my life. That was really bad. Yeah. Uh, almost as bad as, as the shit I've had to deal with in the last year. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole different thing. Well, do you mind uh, going there and telling us what that was like? Well, why don't we get into like how I got from doing this video game stuff to. Yeah. Tell me about that. So you. So now Stomped is gone. You had a small little local in, in Minneapolis. Well, I guess it was more Eden Prairie, wasn't it? Where was this original Stomp? The local it was in Minneapolis. Had? In okay. fact, here's the other weird thing. In hindsight, so now that location is one block away from the Twin Stadium. Are you serious? Yeah. They mm. built the stadium like a, literally a block away, and it's a oh. huge high-trafficked area, whereas when I <laughs> built it, it was in a warehouse district and nobody went there. Fun, so, fun little fact about your local land, uh, little land center. It was my first public appearance as a cartoon. Yeah, I remember when you came up and did a signing, and uh, yeah, you had like this some one fan that was like, uh, he was like really nervous to meet you or something, didn't you? Like he was a kid, and didn't he end up like visiting you? And he was a thirteen-year-old kid. His name's Daniel Gritner, and he waited outside in the cold, assuming there would be a line. Right. <sighs> Because I'm the greatest thing that ever happened. Scott oh, yeah. And uh, waited out in the Minneapolis cold for, what, an hour? For no reason? <laughs> to meet me. And I s still know him today. He spent a whole summer at our house one year. Couple summers. He was like a, an unofficial super fanboy paid in, unpaid intern. That sounds we, like became, the, the premise for a horror movie. <laughs> sounds like the premise for Foxcatcher. <laughs> It ends in a murder. What's he do today? Uh, he is, uh, he runs a bakery. He runs his own bakery. He, he was really pushing for a long time how he wanted to open uh, a store that embodied his two passions, which was baked goods and tattoos. And it was going to be a, um, a baking, uh, it was a tattoo parlor with a bakery in it. And I said, Danny, you really got to pick one. Those two do not go together. There's a Venn diagram where they overlap. That is very small. I don't even think that. I don't think they ever overlap. It's maybe an eight, <laughs> the number eight on its side. But yeah, you know, he's, we stay in touch. We talk to him all the time. But uh, yeah, so anyway, so you had that one location, then you decided to take it national. You were going to, you were going to open up something in the Mall of America, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we put that, that never ended up happening. And it was basically because the, the mall of America were kind of dicks about the whole thing. They had this empty spot up in their entertainment area that had been empty forever. And they just never, you know, they wanted to squeeze as much out of you. And I was like, look, I, you know, this is a small business. This is a, a new thing. 
uh, and they wanted to charge you like it was um, TGI Fridays or something like that, or some national chain. And right. I was like, that, that's just not going to happen. But I had all the designs and all the plans made up for everything, and then that just didn't happen. It's a good thing that didn't happen, though. But even in hindsight, I think the way we originally did it, so the, the gaming center we had had all Alienware machines yeah. and huge monitors, and that was just not a good business model. Yeah. It was too expensive. Whereas, like I said, if we had done this with Xboxes or something, which, had, which were, were not out when we first built it, right? something low cost where we're, we're really just serving drinks, that would have been the, the way to do it. A bar where... Yeah can just play, you know, console games. That probably would have been a better a better business model. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so stomp.com it, it does not survive the dot com bubble burst. Your land center doesn't move to Mall of America. So then what do you do? How old are you at this point? I'm in my 30s. I go back to school for a couple of years. Um you did? Yeah, I studied geology for three years at the University of Minnesota. Oh, I remember that now. Yeah, I was thinking of even like, oh, I'm in my mid-30s. I was thinking like, oh, maybe I can, you know, go get my PhD or something. And then I saw the experience that they were going through. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I like learning, but I don't like doing research. Okay. And then I just sort of in an instant came up with this idea of selling my house and traveling around the world. It was such a 180 for me when you called me, when we talked about it, we were catching up one day and you're like, yeah, I moved everything to my storage facility and I don't have a house anymore. And it, that took me about 18 months from coming up with the idea to actually turning over the keys to my house just because I had to, I had to sell the house and the housing market was kind of weak and, it just took a while. And that was, uh, yeah, that was, I turned over the keys to the house in 2007. You know, what's funny, and I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast because, you know, we never dealt with this when we were starting out, but social media now is just this one big exercise in comparing yourself to other people's success or the perception of success that social media perpetuates. And at the time, my exposure to you was a guy who was just well, well, well ahead, so far ahead of the curve than I could ever be. You'd started your own company. You had sold it. You'd started other companies with great success. And even though it failed, it wasn't your fault that it failed. Um, you'd come out of that and you had this really awesome place in Minnesota, this gorgeous theater downstairs. Like you were living the life. In my opinion, you were independently wealthy you had done well early and you could just do whatever you know you, that was the goal like that's where i wanted to get to and you were like eh, i'm giving it all up and just going to travel the world and i was like what <laughs> how how what why so in, when i so when i sold my business the, the first one they i conned them into sending me on a trip around the world to their various offices i sold it to a big multinational company right and so i went to tokyo Taipei, Singapore, uh, Frankfurt, Belgium, Paris, and London. Wow. It's like a three-week whirlwind tour. I circled the earth. And that's the first time I'd ever really been anywhere. And it was a real eye-opening experience. And that kind of always stuck with me. 
And I did a couple international trips after that. I, I went to Iceland and I went to Argentina. And then I was like, yeah, I want to I wanna do this. And so I did it. So what, what, so what were your first steps in, was your goal to become a travel blogger or just to go experience that wasn't, the world? That wasn't a thing. There was no such thing as travel blogging. Um, I just, I started a website because I, I, you know, I was an internet guy and that's kind of yeah. what I always did. So that was a natural thing to do. Um, but nobody really was the only kind money of travel stuff this. was like PBS, like Rick's. Rick Steves. Oh, there were some other sites, but nobody that was actually on the road doing stuff. Uh, there were a couple other, there were other people right. doing it, but it was a very small number. Uh, you know, like early web cartooning. There just weren't a lot of people doing it at first. And I knew the names of, yeah. of kind of everybody. Um, and I think I had a couple things going for me. When I started, I, I visited places that most people don't travel to. So yeah. most people I travel, they just go to like, you know, big cities of the world. And I, I took six months to island hop across the Pacific. I was going to Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, Easter Island, Micronesia, Vanuatu, places like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that brought, you know, got people interested. But yeah, it was three and a half years between when I started and when anyone in the travel industry even bothered to contact me. Wow. So in that time, you had some pretty interesting, like, you, very early on, you you did stuff that was fascinating to me, even though maybe no one had noticed you yet. I noticed you because you were sending us tapes. You were sending uh, me and a friend of mine uh, little micro uh, videotapes that you had taken on a camcorder of stuff you were doing in the hopes that we could... Uh, Edit it for you so you could put it online, maybe. Was that right? Well, yeah. So initially the plan was I was going to do video. Right. And YouTube existed. I think Google had bought it by then. Right. But the idea of being a YouTuber was no. not yet a thing. And there wasn't, you know, solid state digital video. Everything <clears throat> was still on tape. And yeah. so here I was tramping around the Pacific with this bag full of videotape. And I had, you know, a circa 2007 MacBook Pro. You had to import all the video into it from the camera. It was a really pain in the ass, time consuming process. So I eventually just said, screw it and uh, focused on still photography. And that's kind of what, what people know me for. But the goal was I wanted to go to different places and just describe you know, or, or give sort of an educational lesson about that place. How much did you know about photography when you started? Nothing. Just bought a camera. Abs abs I bought a camera that was expensive thinking, Oh, this will take good photos. And then I learned right away. Oh, that's not how it works. Right. The thing I had going for me is that I realized my photos were bad. So I knew that I had to figure out how this works. And it was just an incremental process of learning how the camera worked and getting better. Yeah. And now you've won awards for your photos. Yeah. So I was 2014. I was uh, named travel photographer of the year in North America. I was in the desert in Namibia and up for like a week. And I remember coming out and I'm in this internet cafe in Swakamund and I check my email 
And there's all these emails like, congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. I'm like, what, what are they congratulating for? Because I'd sent in my, app, my application months ago, and I had no clue what was happening. And then I realized that I not only had won an award, but I won the top prize. And I found out later, as I got to know a lot of these photographers, and these are like National Geographic photographers, when they announced the award, and I wasn't there, uh, nobody knew who the hell I was. They were just like, who? Gary, <laughs> what? One, and they were all looking at each other like, who the fuck who is this guy? Exactly. And, um, and then I, I won it twice for another uh, travel organization, uh, the North American Travel Journalists Association. And for the Society of American Travel Writers, and I've won a couple Lowell Thomas Awards, um, which is like the Pulitzer Prize for travel writing. And they have a photography category. Uh, so, yeah, I've done pretty well in, in photography, yeah. although I haven't taken my camera out of my bag in a year. Yeah. So let's talk about that. What happened in the last year? The pandemic uh, hits. Yeah. So. the. The blogging stuff, you know, I have pretty popular social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and I've always kind of been able to do that again, mostly through photography and doing interesting things. And the business is primarily uh, you have a lot of destinations, tourist boards that spend money on promotion, and they tend to be government organizations, so they don't have to show a profit. They just have to spend money. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's also pr some private things like, uh, tour companies, travel agencies, cruise lines, stuff like that. It's a very big business and most people don't realize how big it is. It is on a par globally with things like agriculture and energy. So travel and tourism is, but the problem is there's no massive companies in the same way that there are in like oil. And so you don't get the same thing. So I never, ever would have thought that this industry could just disappear. It'd be like, you know, in cartooning, it's like, well, no more pencils. Right. <laughs> Can't draw anymore. No it's more. Just, we're done. And so in February of 2020, I'm in Portugal and I come home February 28th and I'm sick for about a week. And I think in hindsight, I had COVID. Do you really? Yeah. In hindsight, I do. Because... I had, I was, I was just really like had the flu for a week. <clears throat> I didn't have a lot of the symptoms other people have, but this was very early on and testing was still difficult to come by and it was still being reserved for like, you know, healthcare workers. And because I, I got better in like a week, I didn't feel any need to go get a test or anything to see if I did have it because what was the point? I, I'm better if I had it. Okay, great. It's just intellectually knowing about it. And I don't want to take the test away from someone else. So I just never bothered. But I thought this was all going to be done in like a month. Yeah. Like, okay, we shut down the borders. This dies down. <clears throat> and at the time, everything was happening in China. And I, I got think this, a lot this, of people felt that way. Yeah. Cause I was, this is all happening in China at the time. And that's where all the news was coming from. And I had this friend in China who does travel and tourism stuff. And we were talking about, well, you know, this is going to be a stain on China. People are going to be afraid to go. Maybe we could do a, a marketing and promotion campaign for some of the uh, places in China. So we were thinking, well, you know, we could probably do it in April. Maybe we'll do it in May just to be safe. 
Well, yeah. obviously that didn't happen. No. And it, it kind of then began to dawn on me that I lost. Uh, so I had several projects lined up with some destinations. They all disappeared. I had some tours that I was going to run for readers. They all disappeared. Uh, I do affiliate sales on my website for various tour companies and whatnot. That dropped to zero. The traffic to my website dropped by like two-thirds. And all of the advertising that's done by travel and tourism companies stopped. So basically, I lost about 95% of my income in a very short period of time. And as I got talking to some other people, so at the time I was on the board of directors for the Society of American Travel Writers. I was the first blogger ever to be elected. Wow. And I, I, so I got to know some very influential people, like top editors at newspapers around the country and, and people who run uh, tourist boards at a very high level. I started talking to them and the picture they were painting was very dismal. Like this isn't, you know, this isn't just something that's going to happen and then we go back to normal. This is going to take years to play out. This is going to affect, you know, companies are going to go bankrupt. Um, tax bases for a lot of these destinations because it's based on hotel taxes and, and whatnot. That's that's disappearing. They're laying everyone off. They're going into, you know, maybe they'll have one person part-time to keep the lights on. Um, and this was going to be really bad. So even if you know, things got back to normal. The business of this was not going to come back to normal for a while. And, and so far, that's kind of proven to be true, that that's, it's just not happened. So, yeah, I was like, well, what the hell am I going to do? Uh, this is kind of my whole shtick. And a lot of times, if you're having a problem personally, you have a network of people you could go to. Maybe they can help you out. They could, you know, do you a favor, something like that. The problem was this whole industry collapsed and everyone I knew in the business was having the same problems, if not greater. Yeah, they're all in the same boat. One of my friends runs a multi-hundred million dollar uh, tour company in Toronto and they literally went down to zero revenue and they had to lay off and they had offices all over the world. And they had to basically lay almost everyone off or furlough them. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's nowhere you can go <laughs> when you're doing that. Yeah, there's literally nothing to do to correct that for travel. And then on top of that, I live in Minneapolis off of Lake Street. And uh, oh, the George Floyd stuff happened. Yeah. And, you know, uh, about six months earlier, I was paying like 125 bucks a month for parking for my car. And I'm like, I never use my car because everything is in walking distance. I got theaters, I have restaurants and a store. I, don't, I, I, never, I never drive anywhere. And, and when I factor in like, you know, I just did the math. Well, you know, I could take many Uber trips a month and to even get to the point where I'm paying for parking if I needed to do that. Right. Not to mention fuel and insurance and everything else. So I sold my car. Because everything was in walking distance. And then my neighborhood is destroyed and nothing is in walking distance anymore. And so now I'm paying a premium for a really nice apartment in a war zone neighborhood. And 
it was like, yeah, this is this is just kind of the the frosting on the cake. Yeah. Uh, on top of the pandemic, and uh, so I kind of had to, I had to, I had to do something. Um, travel just wasn't going to cut it anymore. All right. So how do you pivot? Okay. So basically I kind of went back to the first idea I had when I started traveling and that was, you know, my first idea was to do these kind of short educational videos. And I had an idea a few years ago, about doing a, a podcast that wasn't a travel show that was more of like a history type podcast. And I started outlining a couple um, episodes. I began doing research and the research was really taking me down a lot of rabbit holes. And I had enough to do like, you know, a two or three hour episode. My first episode is simply going to be answering the question, why is the Mona Lisa the most famous painting in the world? Oh, wow. Do you ever do that episode? No, uh, I did it on my current show, but it's, okay. you know, it's like 10 minutes. Um, but it makes no sense. It's not. She's not a, a queen. She's not a religious person. There's no significance in history. She's uh, not a saint, you know, and most of the paintings back then were of like religious themes and, and whatnot. Right. So why is this random a portrait of a random woman the most famous painting in the world? Uh, spoiler, it's because it, the painting got stolen in the early oh, 20th right? century. Yeah. And it was in all the news. And when they recovered it, it was a huge news story. And ever since then, it's been kind of like the most well-known painting and it's to the point where even if you're playing a video game like civilization or something and they need an icon to represent culture you they'd use the mona lisa or mona some lisa. you know outline of it to represent not just art but you know culture that's yeah that's our embodiment of it um so i was doing a lot of research for this potential show i got artwork made i got the theme music all the stuff you do for a podcast and i just kind of put it aside so when the shit was hitting the fan and everything was collapsing around me, I was like, okay, maybe I need to rethink this show. But a two to three hour show just economically wasn't going to work. Uh, and I just sort of did the math on everything. And then I thought, well, okay, what if I did the exact opposite? Because there's this guy I know who launched a daily podcast several years ago. And he was very successful in a lot of other endeavors. And when I was talking to him, he basically said, you should do a daily podcast. It's the best thing I've ever done. I make more money doing this than anything else. And it's crazy. And he was basically making $100,000 a month. Wow. Um, yeah. And so I went back and I did the math. And it's like, well, if I can get this many downloads, and I was like, wow, this, he was, he was right. This makes sense. So I transitioned the show from doing a two to three hour episode to doing a 10 minute episode and just doing them every single day. So on July 1st, I launched everything everywhere daily. Uh, and I've been doing it ever since. And wow. last night I just put out episode 288. It's a scripted show. There are no interviews. I have to write and research, uh, an episode every single day. Um, yeah, my yesterday's episode was on the Halifax explosion which was the largest non-nuclear explosion in history that killed 2,000 people in Halifax, Nova Scotia during World War I uh, when a, a ship carrying munitions exploded in the harbor. And a lot of people don't even know about it. It's my new favorite podcast. That's going on the marketing material. Scott Kurtz, it's my new favorite podcast. It is my new favorite podcast. In fact, um, my poor wife, when she comes home uh, and uh, tells me about her day, uh, because she leaves the house, her day is different. My day is always the same. I drew and I worked on my stuff. So I have nothing to tell her about my day. Uh, 
But I do get to tell her about what I learned on your podcast that day. <laughs> so one day she came home, told me about her day. And she's like, how was your day? And I'm like, well, do you want to know how April 1st became the day we played jokes on everybody? Because I know now. Because of everything everywhere daily. Yeah, and it's just random shit every day. It's, it's yeah, different. I, you never know Gary, what you're going to get. But Gary, this is one of the reasons why I think our friendship has endured for so long. At least one of the reasons why I'm attracted to you as a friend. because. You, uh, you know, so much stuff. And then I remember I was at your house one time, you told me this thing about Singapore and how the leader of Singapore, no one in Singapore, uh, believed that women should work. And, uh, it was killing the economy. And so the leader who also believed women shouldn't work decided no women are going to work now. And he was like this ultimate pragmatist. And you just had all this knowledge in your head. Yeah, Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, very interesting guy. Uh, but yeah, I've always kind of been that way. I was the kid that read the encyclopedia growing up. And I felt I was uniquely kind of suited to do this, plus with all my travels. Because I've just, you know, if you, if you listen to some of the shows, I'll usually throw in like, oh, and I was there. And I did that. Like, right. I, just, I just did a show the other day on uh, Sobrino de Botin, which is the oldest restaurant in the world in Madrid. And I've been there. And wow. it was Ernest Hemingway's favorite restaurant. And I sat at Hemingway's table and I had his dish, which was suckling pig and a glass of Rioja Alta, which was his favorite wine. And uh, so I was able to talk about it and say, yeah, and I've done that. And if you go there, it's a really tiny table. So don't expect much. But uh, there's been a lot of that stuff where I've been able to, to write something based on my experiences. Uh, a good example is the city of Nijmegen. In the Netherlands, I visited there uh, a couple years ago. And if you ever seen the movie A Bridge Too Far, yeah, there's a scene where the Americans have to cross the river and take this Nazi position on the other side of the river. They don't have any boats. So they finally scrounge up these boats and they're made of canvas, which are not good at stopping bullets. And they also had no oars or paddles. So they're using their butts of their gun. And they cross the river, take heavy casualties. They take the position and are able to take the bridge. And I think like 40, 42 Americans die in this raid. So fast forward to, uh, it's like 2010 around there. Nijmegen has to build a new bridge. So they build a bridge across the river and they put in 42 sets of lights across the bridge. And at sunset, every day since the bridge has opened, there are at least two veterans who walk across the bridge at sunset, regardless of weather. And as they walk across the bridge, one by one, all the lights are lit up in remembrance oh, wow. of the soldiers. And I got to do this with them. And uh, most people have never heard of this story. They're no. not aware that this tradition takes place uh, and that you can go and participate in it. You can go, if you're ever in the city of Nijmegen, you just show up at sunset on, on the southern end of the bridge and you'll see some guys in berets. And, uh, you can, you can walk with them and it's, it's, it's a very brisk walk, but, um, yeah, it, it's something they do every single day and they've never missed a day. This is why I recommend your podcast to everyone. Um, you've never told me anything either in person. Cause I had the luxury of a friendship with you or on your podcast. That's a piece of history, uh, or knowledge or science that was not immediately engaging and interesting. And I, I do lament that you don't get to go on travels anymore because 
um, you you always have just amazing stories. And my favorite one of yours is how you went to this small little country into a museum of theirs and had to let them know that a very valuable item of theirs was at risk. Yeah. So just to let everyone know, I mean, you say you're, you lament the fact I can't travel. I don't. I've traveled a lot. Yeah, you have. I, I, I will be willing to bet that if anyone listening to this podcast, I'm the best traveled person they probably ever listen to. I've been to over 200 countries and territories around the world. I've been to every state in the country twice. I've been to every Canadian province, every German state, every Australian state, every South African state. I've been to a lot of stuff. Uh, so I was in this, this was early in my travels. I was in the Solomon Islands, which is a country no one visits. And I was in their national museum, quote unquote, which is a Quonset hut with some, some stuff in it. And, uh, so back in the seventies, the American government gave away samples of moon rocks to every country in the world as a goodwill gift. And it was just something that was on a, a wooden plaque and it was encased in like, um, acrylic, like the size of a large marble. and it was given to the Solomon Islands when they became independent in 1978. And there's a little thing, you know, to the people of the Solomon Islands signed President of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Okay. And these moon rocks, some of them, most of them got put in museums. Some of them disappeared. And moon rocks on the black market fetch a lot of money, like millions of dollars, because okay. they're extremely rare. Right. Only it's so a much rock of it. from the fucking moon. Exactly. So there was a, um, an attorney at NASA, and I didn't even know NASA had attorneys, who was trying to hunt down and find all these moon rocks. And I had read an article about this before I, I started traveling, just randomly read it. So I'm in this museum, and in this display case was the Solomon Islands moon rock, like the, the thing. And the display case was not locked. And... I, I knew the value of this on the black market. This could go for, you know, multiple millions of dollars. So I went and I asked the person who runs the museum, like, could I, could I take this out and take a picture of it? And they're like, yeah, sure. Whatever. So I did. And then I wrote this article basically. Uh, and when you curious, say take, when you say take this out and take a picture of it, I, I'm, don't picture like the New York Met. This is a small little. This building. is not. I, that's why I say it's the National Museum in quotes. It could just right. as easily be like, you know. Someone's house. Yeah. It, okay. it, it's, it's just, and it's mostly shells and feathers. It's basically and, uh, this million dollar thing in a curio cabinet. Yeah. And, and so no, I write. No I, one came with gloves to take it out. They just let you take it out. Yeah. And so I wrote this up. I wrote an article called The Curious Case of the Solomon Islands Moon Rock. And then. This guy from NASA contacted me and he's like, he asked me some questions. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's there. And it's been a long time since I've had anyone update me, but I would get emails like every year for, you know, a couple of years after where people said, yeah, I saw your article. Just want to let you know, it's still there. Wow. And I've, I've, I've done these elaborate things of like, you know, how it could be stolen. Um, real easy. You could easily, you know create a duplicate, switch it. It wouldn't even be an Ocean's 11. It would be, it would be like an Ocean's 1. It would be so easy to rip off. Uh, and didn't you, the didn't you tell the runner of their museum that this should be Yeah, they should at least... More? I would hang it on the wall of like the Parliament building or something like that um, rather than put it where it is. Did they just but, not seem to care? Yeah, I... 
it's yeah, it's been a long time. I'm kind of <laughs> curious. I'd I'd like to go back. Uh, actually, that's one of the possible trips that got canceled because of uh, the pandemic. It was going back to the Solomon Islands, which I'd really like to do. Uh, beautiful country, and and hardly anyone even knows about it. Tell me about um, tell me about the thing you did in early in your travels that inspired me to do this. Get this oh, tattoo. I got a um, I got a tattoo. I, I'm not a tattoo guy. Uh, Nor am I. I wanted, but I wanted to get a tattoo when I was in the South Pacific because that was tattooing is is something that has been actually I should do a show on this. You should. Um, I'll make a note of that. Uh, is something that has been done all over the world for a very long time, as far as we can tell. Um, Otzi the Iceman, which was found in a glacier in Europe, who was like ten thousand years old was found with tattoos, but the popularization of tattoos really came from sailors in world war two, uh, who were in the South Pacific. So I thought that'd be a good place to get one. So I was on the Island of Rarotonga and I got a tattoo and, uh, it was the story of my travels in cook Island, Maori pictograph. And I got a video of me, uh, getting the tattoo, which is still on YouTube. And, uh, yeah, it's always been a good story. And that's actually the basis of the logo for my website. That's right. Yeah, your which, your main logo is the little man. Which you drew. What do you mean I drew? You drew it. You drew the 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 logo and all the stuff from from my website you created. I did? I was in, yeah, I like visited Seattle or something a while back and you yeah, you just like kind of took the outline of it and made the the dude and you picked a font and Oh my god. I didn't even remember that. Yeah, well, I didn't remember doing a phone call to get you 20 grand either. <laughs> so, we're even. Hey, big thanks to Gary for making the time to be on the show. If you'd like to read more about Gary's travels around the world, visit everythingeverywhere.com. And check out the Everything Everywhere daily podcast, wherever you download your podcast. If you'd like to hear some bonus content from this episode, clips that didn't quite make it into our final cut, and you'd like to support our show beyond just listening, head on over to patreon.com forward slash surviving creativity and sign up there. By becoming a patron, you hear episodes early, get extra content, and even have a chance to become an associate producer of the show. Just like our friends, Todd Shoemaker, Ryan King, K.R. Hinton, Jonathan Small, Ryan Fisher, John Sanford, Dale Richardson, Bob Glasscock, and Chris Beverwick. Uh, that is a sausage fest of associate producers. We need to get some ladies up in this. Uh, Izzy. Blues!